the story is gold, but how you tell it, where you tell it, how long it is, the details that you provide are definitely dependent on the audience and you know where you're going to be using it and the results that you want to get. Hey everyone, my name is Noah Barnett and I'm the VP of Marketing at Feather. And today in the studio, I'm joined by Julia Campbell. She's an author, a speaker, and a digital strategist. And as we talked before we started recording, a longtime friend, like a decade, 10 years, we've been chatting about nonprofit marketing, social media, navigating this like digital mess that's out there and how do we promote our missions? How do we drive that forward? Julia, so grateful to have you. I'm so thrilled to be here. We were trying to figure out when we first met. It was just been so long, but it's great to be here. Yeah, definitely 2012 or 2013, somewhere around there. Mm-hmm. Probably on a podcast or a webinar or something uh, mm-hmm. collided in that way. But ever since, and a lot's changed over that. And we're going to talk about like what what's changed. A lot hasn't changed True. in 10 years. But before we do that, for people that may not know who you are. I would love for you to give kind of a quick background on who you are, how you got into mm-hmm. good marketing or helping nonprofits do good marketing, and what was kind of that squiggle to get you to where you are today. Right now, I consult with nonprofits around digital marketing and digital fundraising campaigns, specifically how to get their message out there, how to get more visibility, and how to drive donations in this digital world. Um, and I started out in nonprofit work probably. I mean, as early as high school, I've volunteered, I've run, you know, food drives, diaper drives, things at my high school. I served in the Peace Corps in Senegal for two years, and I met a lot of NGOs and nonprofits there. When I came home, I started my very first director of development job, and then I was a director of development and marketing at large organizations, uh, universities, and then small community-based organizations for several years before going out on my own in 2010. Yeah. And that was about, again, right around when we started meeting was when you were mm-hmm. kind of reflecting on this and helping organizations uh, do marketing. Before we get into the weeds, so on the Unplugged podcast, we like to get into the details, talk about real campaigns. I would love to know kind of the latest marketing or brand campaign that inspired you. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think as marketers, we always like envy other people's work and we're like, wow, that ad was brilliant. Was there something that really resonated with you out in the market that uh, you kind of learned from recently? Well, one of my favorite campaigns that I've worked on. So last year I worked on a campaign with a group called Attendance Works. So a lot of my clients tend to be very either academic or advocacy-based or legislative-based, very kind of wonky, and they come to me to figure out how to make their message more resonant and how to tell their stories because they know what they do. They have the statistics, they have the data, they they have release reports every five minutes, they talk to legislators, but how do you make it translatable to the average person. So attendance works. They seek to raise awareness around chronic absenteeism. And what a lot of people don't know is that chronic absenteeism since COVID has doubled. And a lot of people are actually taking their kids out of school more and more, even just for recreation or for trips, or they are working more, so they're not able to monitor if their children are in school or not. I mean, there's a lot of economics involved in this. And, you know, there's, you know, chronic absenteeism, they frame it as an equity issue as well. So trying to get the stories around this, because it's so hard to find that line between 
we released this report or we worked with this principal and then this child actually started coming to school more. But the more we dug into the work that they did, the more stories we actually found. Mm. So finding these stories of teachers that were really helped, you know, in the classroom by the work of attendance works or a training that they did or a webinar that they did or some consulting that they did with the school. And attendance works had just never done this kind of, you know, deep dive into storytelling and case studies before because they just didn't have the capacity and they were so focused on changing legislation and, you know, just doing the work every day. So that fundraising campaign was really inspiring because not only did we really see the effect and the impact of the work in the day-to-day schools and talk to people and actually get these really resonant like testimonials and case studies, it really affirmed the work on the behalf of the organization. And I think that they really saw that everything that they do has a distinct impact. And especially for their fundraising campaign, it kind of blew their past fundraising results out of the water because it was focused on the why. You know, the why we do what we do. It's all about getting kids back in school. It's about increasing equity and access to education. You know, this is really what we do. And not necessarily about the what and the wonkiness and the statistics. And, you know, we know that not many people know this, but you would imagine chronic absenteeism increased in COVID because, of course, schools were closed. There was so much uncertainty, so many health issues. But getting kids back in school has been really challenging. But wrapping that wrapping that up in a framework and telling people the stories of the people that are impacted day to day and what the impact does, what chronic absenteeism actually does when you get down to it was, was really important and critical for their fundraising campaign. So that was one of my favorite things I worked on last year. Yeah. And even like as you're telling the story, like what I'm going to walk away with is like, oh, chronic absenteeism is a thing. And that makes sense. And it's even giving that language to it. I'm curious on to dig into this example a little bit further. You said they really didn't have the time or energy. Where did you start or what questions did you all start asking to find the stories? Or, or yes. what, what's kind of transferable to if someone else is like, hey, I resonate with that organization's challenges. What questions do I ask to even start finding the right story? Well, there also was a lot of resistance in the organization because the thought was, and this is something I hear very frequently, we don't want to exploit people just to raise a few bucks. Like I actually heard that exact mm. statatement. So there was kind of resistance saying they're they're thinking of like the Sarah McLaughlin example of the arms of the angels song, the ASPCA ad with the puppies and the kittens in the cages. A lot of people think of fundraising in that way and marketing in that way. And they think it's exploitative and it needs to be exploitative to be effective. So we had to encounter that resistance, a lot of resistance. Also, they are national, but they're based in California. So they don't really have people on the ground. They do a lot of consulting and um, advocacy work and training and webinars and research reports. They work a lot with principals and they work a lot with school districts. So 
going back to those school districts and digging deep in the print with the principals and saying, do you have an example? Of course, the principals are all swamped completely. We are the last yeah. thing that they want to deal with. The school districts, I'm actually on the school committee here. So I think that perspective, I could lend that lens to the work because I know how busy it is, you know, to be working in a school district or even to be on the school committee, be the superintendent. But it was those relationships. So the executive director, the development director, they had really good relationships established with some of these schools, but it was just, it just involved like taking an inventory and seeing where is like the low hanging fruit that we can just grab. Who do we know that, you know, we don't necessarily know if they have a story, but who do we know could lead us in the right direction? Or who do we know that would be helpful with us because the, you know, the framework that I teach is really, you know, collect the story, craft the story and share the story. And there's different pieces in each of those in pieces of the framework, but collecting the story, that's, you have to build that relationship and that trust, show people what you're going to actually do with the story, explain to them, we are just seeing if there's a story here. We just want to talk to people. We could use video. We don't have to. Maybe we do a blog post. Maybe we do a third person. A lot of it was third person, like a teacher telling a story. It wasn't like we were interviewing a kindergartner necessarily, because that would have been uh, that. Would, I think that would have been a little. That's like it's like baby steps, baby storytelling steps. <laughs> so hopefully, what this did was increase their confidence and their capacity, so that they can create this sort of system. And really, a lot of it's just being able to identify a story when it happens or to have the systems and structures in place so that say a, a school went through their program. I mean, they had all these schools that went through their consulting program. What There should be a form. There needs to be a follow-up. There needs, like, would you be willing to share your story with us? Is there any fantastic story that you could find um, from your particular school? And maybe we could come in and, you know, do a case study and do a feature on it. So it's really just being like, systematic and intentional about the story gathering. And mm. that just it takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of like mindset shifts, but it's so worth it in the end. Yeah. I, I know you mentioned the framework you teach, you know, is collect, craft, and then share. I want to, I have a bunch of questions on the back half of that, but yeah. the collect side, as you mentioned, so interesting. The one thing I don't, I do want to double tap on, cause I'm, I am curious how you overcame it. Cause I'm, I'm, I'm sure many listeners was that resistance? Mm -hmm. Because the resistance, as you were sharing it, what, how I would define it is the individuals in the organization's relationship with fundraising yes. or with giving of money or philanthropy was the issue, which then bled over into resistance in the organization's thinking about like, this is exploitative, we can't do that. Mm -hmm. And that's very common, like our personal relationships with giving or fundraising or what we've been exposed to impacting what we may invite into how we think about fundraising. And so how did you advise or tackle that resistance practically? Like, was it through conversation? Was it through just sharing examples? How did you tackle the resistance? Well, I so I came from my experience, my very first like um, storytelling experience that I had in an organization that was a domestic violence organization. And what happened there that was few years before, there's probably about 15 years ago now. What happened was that the, just the trust wasn't built. And I came in and I said, I'm going to do this. I need 
stories for the newsletter. I need stories for the fundraising appeal. I need stories for the gala. I need stories for this. And if people don't understand what you mean by story, and if they don't understand what you mean by fundraising, if we're not all speaking the same language and the same terms, it's really challenging. So a lot of times maybe program officers they think their job is, you know, to do the work. They're doing the work, they're going in every day and they're just performing the work. But creating that culture of philanthropy, it's really up, you have to have buy-in. You can't just be the director of development yelling at everyone all the time. So we, you know, we had a lot of buy-in from Hedy Chang. She's amazing. She's executive director. She's absolutely fantastic. The board and like several key board members. So we had buy-in from them. And then the other thing is sharing a lot of examples with people because they do have, I know if, if you're not a fundraiser or trained in fundraising, you probably have an icky feeling in your mind about asking people for money. You probably are thinking, oh, you know, we're just going to share these stories out and try, you know, I don't know what we're going to do with them, but we're just using them for fundraising. But creating that culture of philanthropy where, everyone is invested in the sustainability of the organization, it's very challenging. But I would say getting buy-in from higher ups, like don't fight this battle yourself and sharing a lot of examples of what other organizations are doing and saying, here's what another organization did that I think is really interesting. Here's a great fundraising video that this other comparable organization did that I think would be great for us to adapt. Because if you just come at it with a blank page and you say, we need some stories. People don't know what a story is. It's not their fault. You know in your head what you want, but you really have to explain the who, what, when, where, why, and how. Also the benefits. You know, we know statistically that stories raise more money, raise more awareness, get more reach and engagement than any other kind of content. So maybe even finding that kind of data, if they're data-driven people, finding examples and visuals, if they're visual-driven, but really kind of creating the case, almost thinking about it like a court case, like bringing the evidence forward and saying, I think that we can do this too. Yeah. It's a great point. We're actually, and I can relate to this internally because, you know, Mm -hmm. as as a tech company, we're always looking for stories of success. Yeah. And we're not necessarily working directly with the client. So we have to build that rapport as well in the same way, you know, a fundraiser or a marketing individual might need to build rapport with the programs team or mm-hmm. those doing the work. And the one thing we've been trying to ask, and I think it's relatable to what you just shared, is what do they need, the programs officer? Yes. That we can structure the ask or the excavation process that would exactly. then they would actually glean benefit as well. So, you know, in this case, it's like, hey, we want to improve our program. So it's like, hey, let's shape this as story finding, not for marketing and fundraising, but like we're actually showcasing the impact of our event. Mm-hmm. And that's something you were a part of. Like we are celebrating that the work actually makes a difference. And that's mm-hmm. part of almost the due diligence in closing the loop, not as an inspection, but as a celebration of like, this is the impact of our work. And you're part of that and almost pulling them in. And something we're thinking through as well is, what is what do they want that we can anchor it to mm-hmm. that still gets us what we need to be able to produce a great story and find those stories? And so I think that's a good question to ask. Is like, what does your programs team need and want mm-hmm. that you could anchor this story collecting process uh, through? And it just needs to be part of the culture. It's so hard to change a culture inside an organization. But if everything is siloed, and if you are the director of development and you're way off 
you know, and I have been this director of development often a separate building and no one is answering your emails and talking to you then, and you're just kind of expected to raise $10 million out of nowhere. We, you really have to question the structure of the organization and the job responsibility because, you know, it's not necessarily everyone's job to be meeting with a major donor, but it is everyone's job to contribute to the well-being and the sustainability of the mission. So that definitely involves fundraising, maybe in some aspect. So creating that culture, explaining the importance of this, you know, individual giving. I know for a couple of organizations I work with, they don't get federal funds, grant funds. They rely on private donations solely. And some of the staff didn't know that, you know, so just explaining that, look, we really rely on individual donations. You don't need to necessarily make one, but we need your help to create the kind of content that's going to inspire individuals. Yeah, for sure. And I think that, you know, not to add another thing to the fundraiser and marketer's hat, right. uh, or another hat to the the, the coat rack. To is, the pile. Mm-hmm. Yeah, is uh, internal communications is important. And I talked yes. about that even as a marketer. I'm like, hey, part of our marketing is to market to the community. And the community is external and internal because we have partners, we have other teams we have to work with, we have product, but we also have our supporter, our, our prospects and our customers and all of that. But we are marketing to the community. Mm-hmm. And so it's not even internal, external. It's like everything we do, we have to figure out how we're going to communicate it. And I think taking that responsibility, if you take anything away from this uh, listener, is I need to do a better job at internal communications on like, how mm-hmm. do I communicate with my team, better understand what they need, help educate on what's going on. That can really accelerate the story collecting process in the long term. Mm-hmm. The other thing you mentioned as part of the story process, where I think is really challenging even for fundraisers, is once you've collected stories. Okay, we have all these beneficiary impact reports that the programs team did that say, oh, we helped them improve their lives by 3%, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Or you maybe got someone to give a testimony. You've collected all of this and you're crafting those stories. What tips mm-hmm. do you have for finding the right story? Yes. Because sometimes we spend so much effort and resistance breaking on the collection yep. that we don't necessarily do a great job at crafting the story. So what mm-hmm. guidance do you have for someone on how to craft results generating stories? So the crafting piece, it depends where you're sharing it. So you have to actually think about the third step or it depends the audience that you're trying to talk to. Mm-hmm. So when you have a kernel of a story or an idea for a story, or you've collected some testimonial, some story, you have to think about the result that you want to get. So everything I learned about fundraising, I learned from Steven Screen, <laughs> the better fundraising company. I just talked about him earlier today uh, on, in a Phenomenal. conversation. He's like, brilliant. Absolutely yeah. brilliant. And he talks about the two kinds of stories. You probably need multiple stories, but the two most important kinds of stories you need for fundraising. One is the appeal, like when you're asking for money, it should be a story that is saying, we still have a problem. Like this is still a problem and we need your help. Although I know he hates saying we need your help. Like join us, (laughs) make a gift, buy, you know, a meal for a hungry family, whatever it might be. Be as specific as possible. And then the second story is the results story. And that's not a story used for fundraising. That's a story you use for marketing or for donor relations. So to solidify that relationship with your donor, to make them feel like we've done something important, but then also still show them that this is, problem is not solved. Yeah. Like we still need your help. Think about how much more we could do with your, with your help. The problem we run into when we craft stories 
is we just simply recount things that happen. So we say, hi, this is Julia. And she came to Rosie's place in Boston and she got some help and she left. And you think, well, that's not, there's no emotion. There's no emotional hook. There's no character and there's no conflict and there's no stakes. So if you don't have stakes, there's no stakes involved. I'm not interested. There's no conflict. Nothing happened that's interesting. That's not really a story that literally is just like a recounting of something that happened. Yeah, it's like a report. So, like you're a reporter. Just a re- like, you're just reporting on the yeah, daily someone news. Someone ran a red light on Friday night. It's like the police report. But, you know, everyone reads <laughs> yeah. their local police report. <laughs> but then if you look in the paper, I mean, I'm still such a huge fan of newspapers. But if you look even online, you're reading online, anytime you hear a story about an issue, homelessness, poverty, mental health. I was just reading a fantastic story on children's mental health the other day. It starts with a story. You have to have the stakes. You you have to tell, you know, how was the person feeling? What were they going through? What were some of the things they were experiencing? Why would I want to read the rest of this? You have to make it powerful enough, even if it's just in a tweet or in an Instagram post, that I would still want to continue reading or I would want to click or I would want to watch the video or read the email, whatever it might be. So that's what we're genuinely missing a lot of the time. We think, oh, we're just going to say we did such great work and we fed, you know, 10 people and we saved 20 dogs and here are their pictures, but we don't really talk about the stakes involved around the issue and the mission. We also don't tie the stories to a bigger context because none of us operate in a vacuum. Like we're all, even if you're a library, an arts organization, an academic organization, what you do has bigger implications than just your little tiny community, like literacy, you know, access, free access to books and community events. I mean, that's a huge issue if you think just I've been working with the library, so I'm thinking about that. Yeah. Or the other uses of a library. Yeah. Like, tying the mission. Your to library something is a bigger. community hub. Like, you know, if you've ever been to a yes. library, you would know there's the diversity of people in a library at any given time is is vast. And oh. why they're there is very what different. What would be lost? Library. Yeah, you know, exactly. It could yeah. almost be a story of what would be lost. It could be a story of what has been gained. It can be a story of what's possible. It could be a story of a, of a vision for the future. But there do have to be stakes when you're crafting that story. And the word craft, you know, you tell a story differently if you're telling it on video, if you're telling it at your 25th anniversary gala, if you're telling it on TikTok, if you're telling it in email. There's all sorts of ways that you need to mold it. So. Andy Goodman of the Goodman Center, they focus on storytelling and he actually just retired, which is just such a loss. He's so fantastic. But you can still go to the storytelling or the Goodman Center and look up all of his papers. But he calls the story the gold and you mold the gold. You take the gold, you, you mine the gold, and then you mold it if you're making like a watch or a ring or whatever you might be making with the gold. So I love that analogy because I think the story is gold, but how you tell it, where you tell it, how long it is, the details that you provide are definitely dependent on the audience and you know where you're going to be using it and the results that you want to get. Hey friends, Emily here from Feather. Feather's nonprofit marketing platform turns your if only wish list into reality. Feather Flights, our marketing automation tool, 
helps you design multi-channel campaigns and automated engagement journeys. Feather is trusted by over 1,300 nonprofits, and we help you unlock more time, more results, and ultimately, more confidence with real-time ROI reporting at the campaign level so you know what works, removing the guesswork from your 2023 plan. Book time with one of our digital strategists today and learn how you can unlock more in 2023 with Feather by visiting feather.co. That's feather without the last e dot co. Storytelling isn't isolated to how great of a story can I tell. It has to be anchored into the audience you're trying to, or the community you're trying to target, the channels you're trying to use, and to the, you know, what are you trying to cultivate for? Mm-hmm. And then the content or the story has to be meld to that. So mm-hmm. great, a great story isn't in of itself. So I love that example of the gold. Especially for marketing purposes, fundraising purposes. For sure. And just the, that difference, like you mentioned, that Steve mentions, like what you need to do in a fundraising appeal versus what you need to do in donor cultivation mm-hmm. is different because the mm-hmm. context of the community you're cultivating and what you're trying to cultivate too is different. We talk about this, we have a framework called the good marketing framework, Ooh. which always orients an audience first thinking. And yes. it's something we like to explore on this is like, we sometimes think of, oh, what's the best thing to do on TikTok or Facebook or an email. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, until we know what com- we need to have community first thinking, not channel first thinking. Yes. And that then shapes how the content and the channels we may use Absolutely. to cultivate that relationship. Oh. Um, so that's very powerful. Community first thinking and not channel first thinking. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And it's something that if you're interested in this framework, we'll include this in the show notes. So it's called mm-hmm. the Good Marketing Framework. So if nice. you're listening to this and that's interesting to you, we'll include that link for you. Nice. Two examples that come to mind for crafting that I just thought were brilliantly done. And it goes back to something you said with the domestic violence organization you worked with, where we sometimes opt out of storytelling because it's too sensitive or we could, or for privacy issues, which are, are very important and mm-hmm. like something we should definitely take into consideration. Mm-hmm. But you still can use creative liberties through collection in how you craft the stories. Yeah. And the two examples I've seen that were just brilliant and they were actually not real stories, but they were influenced by re- real, real stories mm-hmm. were Zoe for President by the YMCA a few years ago. They created this whole campaign with this character that they they created called Zoe. And they said, hey, have you met Zoe? Zoe is an adorable one-year-old girl running for office in 2064. Yes. And like, I already get emotional and you can tell where this is going. And they they used real stories. And then they basically highlight how the YMCA would play a role in Zoe <sighs> to make her fit to become president in 2064. Is Zoe a real person? I don't think so. Okay. But see, even, even if not, that's amazing. It's a wonderful storytelling hook. But they took individual stories of impact, right? So maybe they helped John and John was able to come to the Y and connect with community when he was in his 60s because his partner passed away Mm -hmm. or something like that. But they took these real stories that were anchored into an individual and applied them to Zoe's future life and how the YMCA is playing an impact throughout her life to become president and the role that giving to the YMCA has. So that one was really powerful. And again, it was that creative crafting that was brilliant. Highly recommend looking it up. It's probably four or five years old, but it's okay. it was brilliant Zoe by YMCA president. of America. Mm-hmm. And the other one was a smaller campaign. We I actually was a part of in an organization where we were working on the Syrian refugee crisis probably wow. seven, eight years ago. And we wanted to illustrate the journey or what it felt like to be a refugee. 
yep. without necessarily telling one individual story because one individual story wasn't representative of the whole. Mm-hmm. And so through research and collection, the communications team actually created a story where we wrote a first-person fictional account that said, I'm a Syrian refugee. And it was this depiction of like, what is it like to be in this moment of conflict and go through this? And when did you encounter the services we were funding? And and what was that vantage point? Which I think is so important in story is like, we could have told it from the program director's vantage, but we wanted to, they wanted to tell the story from this, from the refugees perspective and the impact that they were having and the fear that they felt. And I was reminded about this campaign. It did really well when I recently watched the documentary of the two twins that were swimmers. I don't know if you've seen this documentary. No, I need to. I know what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. But it's just a beautiful retelling of like their experience in a documentary. And it's based on a true story. But what they were trying to show is just like the value that these different entities played and like the the perseverance that they had to have and like the collection of all of that or the collisions of all of that. So beautifully told. What about themes? Yep. Ow. And so Zoe for president and then I am a Syrian refugee. Those are really powerful um, and definitely look at the documentary. I think it was extremely well done, even though it was just a telling against a real story. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. I have two other examples. I yeah, think I was going to ask. One any, is a YMCA. You got me thinking about it. So my local YMCA, when I used to live in Beverly, I live in a, a town next door now. They did an entire campaign where they interviewed people that were Y members, like real people. So... I didn't get interviewed, but that's okay. But so what you would see is if you were going to the gym all the time or swimming all the time or, you know, bringing your kids to stuff all the time, they made these posters with quotes and you'd be like, oh, I know that person. I see them on the treadmill or like, oh, that's my friend. It was amazing. They probably did about 20 like real actual people, the people that were go to the Y all the time and their kids and they took great pictures of them. They did little quotes and it was such a good Um, community builder also because you'd see someone and you'd say, oh, I saw your poster. Like, that was so cool. Like, I didn't know, you know, you'd been a member for 20 years or I didn't know you had, you know, multiple sclerosis. I mean, they really were amazing stories that things people were sharing. And I'll never forget that campaign. It was incredible because it was a member campaign, like trying to get members to either give more on top of their monthly donation. Um, So it was specifically designed for members. And I thought it was just a brilliant way to do it. And just, it was amazing. And then the second campaign, and I was trying to Google it, and I don't have the specifics, but I know that I wrote about it in a blog post. It was a campaign that won a direct mail award a really long time ago, probably like 20 years ago. And it detailed the story of one child patient at this particular children's hospital. It was not it was not local to me, but it was rather than tell a bunch of different disparate stories throughout their whole fundraising for the year, they followed this one boy who was like in and out of the hospital, you know, getting treatments, sometimes staying. Um, and he would give you tips about the hospital. So he'd say, oh, you know, they always have cupcakes by like, the elevator on 11 and, oh, you know, my favorite anesthesiologist is John and like the gift shop, you know, they'll give you an extra, you know, lollipop when no one's looking or he would give you all these little like tips and he was actually a real child there. And it just really helped you contextualize like sort of what it's like. And they didn't just highlight good things, you know, they really, you know, they talked to him about how hard it was and some of the things he couldn't do. I mean, it was really heartbreaking, but also heartwarming. But I love the idea of 
following one person. Like you said, the I am a Syrian refugee. I think that's so much more impactful. It's so, I mean, how many millions of Syrian refugees are there? It's like a mind-blowing statistic. Same with like kids that are suffering from cancer. It's a mind-blowing statistic that you can't even wrap your brain around. But if you hear that one story and, you know, not aiming to speak for everybody, but kind of contextualizing, and it's really increases empathy. Like that is the key to fundraising is not necessarily like sympathy, but empathy, like feeling what this person feels and really understanding and kind of walking through their shoes. So those two examples I loved, but I I love the example of the two examples you shared. I think those are really powerful. Yeah. And I, I also would encourage, I think this is what I love about digging in with someone like you, Julia, and others is like looking at other examples of yes. like brilliant work. Like there's so much brilliant storytelling and fundraising that's happened even 20 years ago, mm-hmm. let alone just a year ago. And it's still relevant today because we still make decisions and give philanthropically because of similar behaviors that we have. So I think looking back at examples and really becoming a student of good fundraising, marketing, and storytelling as mm-hmm. it relates to philanthropy is something I would hope people walk away with this. We just shared six, seven examples. Yes. Um, but there's so many more brilliant work out there. Oh, take those screenshots, save those emails. I have an entire Google Drive of examples. Yeah. Have you watched Mythic Quest on Apple TV? No, but I love Apple TV and I'm obsessed with Severance, if that counts. Okay. <laughs> um, if you Mythic only watch Quest, one I have thing, not. It's it's about it's kind of a uh, an office style comedy about a game development company that's kind of mirroring League of Legends and like these big oh, multiplayer cool. universe games. Okay, I'll Very check funny it out. with the guy from uh, Always Sunny. Yeah, but if you just watch one thing as a storyteller, and especially because this um, the chronic absenteeism uh, organization you were working with, mm-hmm. is if you watch season three, episode seven. They take a break from the current and go back to the two founders of the video game development company and tell oh. their their childhood stories Love and it. how their childhood collided and which resulted in you understanding the whole context for like their dynamic as being founders. And they wait till this, episode three. Brilliant. Uh, season three, episode seven. Oh, so it's geez. like one of those. So it's one of those episodes where you're like, "Am I watching the same show?" Like I... it doesn't. Love a good disruption. But if you watch that episode in the storytelling, you're like a nonprofit should have wrote this script. Mm-hmm. Like it's and it's about absenteeism at school. Wow. And how it was due to some home circumstances and and it's heartbreaking. Like I'm getting goosebumps even talking about it. Oh well, I'll definitely but watch it. Season three, episode seven. Amazing. As a storyteller, you will deeply appreciate it. And I highly recommend sharing it with that team if they haven't seen it. It's um it's pretty powerful. Well, can I add a little bit about Severance and storytelling. So I don't know if you've yeah. seen Severance. But I'm, it's I'm a little Scott. scared of scary movies. It feels like... It's not scary. Oh, not no. Scary? It's it's okay. science fiction. Oh, I don't like scary. It's, okay. it's terrifying the implications for society and technology and capitalism and all that. But it's not like scary, scary, monster scary. Is this the one where they try to divide work and yes. personal life? Okay, yes. I've watched an episode. I, I have watched that. I was thinking the of a different show The first episode, if we're talking about storytelling... It starts in the middle. Like you have no idea what's going on and you can't help but watch the rest of the episode to figure out what's going on. Sometimes telling a story in the middle like that and just jumping you in is the best way to grab attention and like capture and pique curiosity. And it definitely had me, I mean, it's one of my favorite shows now, but it had, I was like, you don't know what's going on, but you you feel like you need to know. And then by yeah. the end, you're like, oh, you still don't know what's going on. But 
It starts in the middle. It doesn't say like, this is Heli R and Heli R is on the severed floor. And I, this isn't really spoilers because you find all this out in five minutes. Yeah. But it doesn't start that way. It just throws you into this world and you have to kind of figure it out. So yeah. I love that idea, but I'll definitely check out that other show. I love, yeah. I love Apple TV. I think it's, I think every show on there is great. Oh yeah, for sure. Really good. I don't know if it's out yet. I just heard an interview with Anna Kendrick about it, oh. which is this movie called Alice Darling. And supposedly they do... I don't know, but I love Anna Kendrick. Yeah, so she helped, she directed this. And so it's Alice Darling and it's it's influenced by her own personal experience. But they mentioned that that's the same thing. Like you're watching the whole movie and you're not sure like what the issue is or if she has mental health or if it's like if the abuse is real or in her head, like there's this whole dynamic where you're not even sure where this is going and they just jump you straight into the story mm-hmm. to meet Alice. So if you love storytelling, just be a student of storytelling. Be a student uh, of storytelling. And- I don't think that watching TV, reading books, reading fiction, none of that is a waste of time. I think we're all learning what it takes to tell a good story and captivate an audience and become resonant. But I, however you want to do it, I think you're absolutely right. Just be a student of storytelling and learn and, and write notes and, you know, adapt as much as you can. Well, Julia, we're almost at our end time and I feel sad about yes, that because it's been too I know, long. me too. But as we're wrapping, I did have one question and then I would love to jump into the lightning round with you. Sure. You know, this podcast is all about helping nonprofits, you know, unplug what's going on in marketing. Yes. And so what excites you about marketing right now? Like as you look ahead in marketing, like what's like this is exciting for our sector and for our industry within marketing? I love this question because so much is just doom and gloom and horrible headlines and layoffs and all sorts of subscription models appearing. I am excited that I think finally nonprofits are going to really drill down into what's working and stop grasping at shiny objects and also really focus on fewer platforms and dive deeper and be more strategic and more intentional on fewer platforms. I think that's the trend and that's what's going to be, you know, continuing. You don't have to be on 30 different platforms. You shouldn't probably be on 30 different platforms. Maybe doing like three or four really well. So I hope that's a trend that continues. Yeah. Just that idea of like focus that's been, you know, swirling around for me is what I see as this migration from the personalized square to the private square. Absolutely. Which is basically like more and more people moving from these personalized feed type platforms into like private communities or private chat groups or exclusive Zoom calls and all of that. And the opportunity nonprofits have to play as a facilitator of Mm -hmm. a private community for people that care about their cause and giving Mm -hmm. them space in connection around that. But it requires focus. Like if you stop playing the mass game, you get the opportunity to do really interesting things. And that relates to what you shared. I'm also really excited about AI creator tools and not because I think I'm not going to use them to write my blogs or my emails, but I think they will spur a lot of creativity. Looking at a blank page is really hard for a lot of people. Also, AI tools in general. I mean, if you read Beth Cantor and Allison Fine's book, The Smart Nonprofit, and AI is just going to be transforming what nonprofits do. And hopefully, a lot of the grunt work that we do in terms of data collection and data analysis can be automated or in some way streamlined. So I'm pretty excited to see where that will go. I'm actually writing a whole pretty extensive blog post about 
creator tools and AI and nonprofits, but I'm I'm excited. I'm not as fearful as as some people are. I think there's, <laughs> you know, obviously pitfalls that we could traps we can fall into, but I think it's pretty exciting. Yeah. I'm excited to see how AI impacts discovery and participation in philanthropy. So less on the fundraising yes. side and more on the like, is there an application to use AI to increase discovery of organizations working on specific types of work? Like, yes. hey, chronic absenteeism, that's really interesting. Like, who's working on that? And it not be this like, oh, I have to go filter on Charity Navigator or something, but like, I just have right. a passion or I read this article about something like, Who's, who's really doing the work here and somehow helping AI increase participation and, and solve discoverability? So that's yes. probably a longer th- yes. discussion, but I, I'm really excited about that. Cool. I have two more lightning round questions for you. What's a book you wish you read earlier in your career as a marketer? It would probably be The Big Leap by Gay Hendricks. I don't think, okay. I'm sure everyone says that, that book, but that is just I haven't heard that one fabulous. Oh, it's about finding your zone of genius and not always working in your zone of competence or your zone of excellence and accelerating to your zone of genius. So it's a mindset book, but it's really important for anyone, you know, trying to do impact work. So, yep, The Big Leap by Gay Hendricks. And last question is, if you were going to give fundraisers and marketers one sentence of advice to lean on this year, what would that be? Like an axiom or something that you would just say, hey, keep this in mind as you go about your work? Done is better than perfect. That's how I live my life. <laughs> Love it. Well, this this episode is now done and we'll, we'll end on that. So Julie, I really appreciate the time. Uh, where's the best way that people connect with you and your work, but also your podcast? Sure. My podcast is called Nonprofit Nation with Julia Campbell. Just look it up wherever you're listening to this one. You can also go to pod.link slash Nonprofit Nation. And my website, my blog, a lot of freebies, information on my books, that's at jcsocialmarketing.com. Really appreciate it, Julia. And I'm sure we'll do it again soon. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thanks so much, Noah. Good Marketing Unplugged would like to give a special thanks to our producer, The Good Podcast Company, and to Feather's very own Max Anderson, who wrote and performed our theme song.